know the why human trafficking work is needed to fight for the freedom of modern day slaves. But love, passion, commitment isn't all you need to be an effective and successful anti-trafficking advocate. Learn the how. I'm Dr. Celia Williamson, Director of the Human Trafficking and Social Justice Institute at the University of Toledo. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation podcast, where I'll provide you with the latest and best methods, policy, and practice discussed by experienced experts in the field so that you can cut through the noise, save time, and be about the work of saving lives. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation, episode 150. And I'm Dr. Celia Williamson. And joining me today is Annie Lafreniere Ritchie. And she works as a Safe Harbor Regional Navigator for Someplace Safe in West Central Minnesota. She also focuses on Native American issues. She's a 2020 graduate of the National Human Trafficking Training and Technical Assistance Center. And she works with the Human Trafficking Leadership Academy, which developed recommendations on how culture can be used as a protective factor against human trafficking among indigenous youth. So welcome, Annie. I'm so glad that you're here. Well, thank you so much for having me. Well, you have done so much. I don't have time to read it all, but you'll talk about some of it. And But I'm really interested in what you guys have come up with in terms of working with indigenous peoples or uh, how culture can actually be used as a protective factor. Can you talk about that? I would love to talk about that. And honestly, I could talk about that all day. So I'll just try to kind of hit some of the the, the key highlights of what we discovered. Um, and we had recommendations really based on every level. First of all, um, systems-wide level. So really engaging um, systems partners in understanding the impact of historical trauma and systemic oppression on Indigenous people and really what that might look like in Indigenous communities. Um, we also had more um, meso-level recommendations really in terms of how can programs take this information, again, in understanding these impacts on Indigenous people um, and, and change program outcomes. Um, so a lot of the things are really um, hiring Native American people to work with Native populations, um, ensuring that service providers look like the people that they are providing services to, and not just look like them, but again, understand their backgrounds um, and the things that they and their ancestors experienced. Then in terms specifically of um, individual level, really a lot of connection to cultural services. Um, also really understanding that background of um, historical trauma, particularly the impact of boarding schools, um, the loss of culture with really um, almost universal physical and sexual abuse in boarding schools, and really how that impacted communities and our ancestors, um, and, and how that kind of is passed down from generation to generation. Um, so that connection with culture, that understanding of how we lost culture, um, and then really removing shame associated with victimization. So let's just back up. We're talking about <laughs> historical trauma. What is yes. that? Um, so <laughs> I'll do my best to explain it, but really this um, understanding that when um, very negative things happen to a group of people, um, often we think of um, in terms of the impacts of slavery on African-American people or internment camp camps on Japanese-American people, um, that it, it can have really a profound impact 
on an entire population of folks. Um, and again, there are traumatic things that are really a part of that experience. So again, as we know, slavery was incredibly violent, um, really, really awful um, impact. And unfortunately, it impacts our, our genes as well. So it can be passed down from generation to generation, not just behaviorally, but also genetically. Yeah. And so when, you know, people were taking away, Indigenous people were taken away to boarding schools, like we don't think about, we think, oh, well, they were just taken to schools to learn, to become educated. But what happened as a result of that? Yeah. So I, I do a lot of talking about this and I, it's such a hard topic, first of all, to talk about because it's really sad. And it's also a hard topic to talk, talk about because people really don't know what it did look like. But um, oftentimes Native um, youth were forcibly removed from their family. So um, folks would come in and take them away, um, oftentimes again um, with threats. So in some communities, um, parents were told that if their kids didn't go to these boarding schools, then the parents would go to prison um, or they would lose all um, aid. And so with all kinds of other stuff that were happening and reservations at that time, tribes were really, really dependent on federal aid. Um, like they, they may starve to death if they didn't get that money. So sometimes the option was you either send your kid to the school far, far away, or you all starve to death. Um, and so, of course, you know, parents thought, mm, maybe that's not so bad. Um, really, truly, what boarding schools were formed on was this idea that um, being Native American was bad and inhuman. Um, and Native folks needed to take on um, traits and characteristics of um, European culture. So <laughs> the methods that they used to bring about that change were often physical abuse uh, and sexual abuse. abuse. Um, so kids were um, sometimes tortured, um, sometimes beaten if they spoke their language, especially, which is, it's so, so sad to think about because many times they were coming in without any knowledge of English language. Um, and so then getting beaten, even though they didn't they had never heard the language before and not being able to speak. It was something they were punished for. Um, so really, really, really profound impact on our elders. Um, and that this period of time really lasted a lot longer than a lot of people think. So it started in the late 1880s and there were boarding schools in practice, even into 1960s and 1970s. Um, so we know for at least 40 years, about 80% of all native Americans in um, the United States attended boarding schools. And we know that, um, data on physical and sexual abuse was between 50 and 100% of those uh, students received some form of physical and sexual violence. Absolutely. And your, your name was taken. You were stripped of your name, your identity, your culture, your family, your roots, if you could only imagine. And so the stories are passed down like they're passed down with any culture that has experienced violence. The stories are important because they remind you, if we don't learn history, we're doomed to repeat it. And yes. so you pass the stories along so that you equip your children in the next generation with the history of what happened to your people so that they can take that into consideration. And when the, when the regular society, the outside society, the mainstream society, all these fancy words that we use for, uh, you know, middle class society, um, says things like, well, that was in the past. I mean, what say you to that? Um, I, I think that we still feel the impacts today um, of things that happened in the past because so many of our families haven't had the opportunity or ability to heal from the things that they experienced. 
Um, so I have seen this in the direct work that I did. I actually attended the University of Minnesota Morris, which was a former Indian boarding school. And um, part of my work there as a student was as a research assistant for one of my professors. Uh, and we were looking at um, finding descendants of the boarding school. So um, we were planning on hosting this um, memorial ceremony um, at our annual powwow. And so we invited a bunch of descendants and nobody showed up, which understandable, right? Um, but fast forward to a couple of years and I uh, started doing tribal social services in a tribal community. And I found that every single family that I was working with was really tied to um, a few key ancestors who had attended this boarding school. So um, all of these families were struggling with substance abuse, um, physical violence, domestic violence, kind of all of these different things that were happening. Um, really what you could see was due to, to unhealed trauma. And even when I started that job, I was working with other community members who had been in the field for 20, 30 years and talking about how that violence had been perpetuated from generation to generation when there were no other options to heal, right? Um, and nobody at that time was talking about what had happened to us either. And so there was there was no conversation around, well, so we experienced these things. And, and there continued to not be a conversation about the harm that had happened to the families that I worked with um, from their ancestors to their intimate partner relationships. It was really just focus on survival. So this, I mean, so many different things happening, you know, when you can't afford um, to pay rent and you can't afford food and you're experiencing domestic violence, it's just like, can we talk about what happened to us when we were kids or what happened to our grandparents or, or do we really just focus on the crisis that we're in right now? Exactly. And uh, I mean, uh, I can relate as my family, you know, uh, Black Americans and the level of trust or mistrust and legitimately so in some cases. And so when we're talking about human trafficking support, trying to help, and we say, well, we're not them. That was in the past. But when we when we approach people with paperwork and and, and back government-backed programming and uh legitimacy in our minds, and we drive up to people's homes, that can you see the similarities of the past. Some people drove up very legitimate <laughs> government yeah. backed and they were very hurtful and very harmful to people. And so when we talk about understanding historical trauma as it relates to how we're going to be working today with those families who, who have heard the stories and have right. gained the lessons from the stories then that's something that is going to absolutely affect the way the, the, the approach that you take. What about um, systemic oppression or all of these these very you know cool words that were used today, but do we know <laughs> what we're even talking about here? But what about systemic oppression? I mean, how is that factored in? Well, so I think that you did a really great job of explaining it when you talked about government-backed individuals coming into communities and really just perpetuating harm. Um, so I think that we've seen that play out in lots of different ways in many different communities. Um, I live in Minnesota and I think of in terms of what happened to George Floyd, right? Um, so oftentimes um, violence from law enforcement against people of color that can be quote unquote legitimized, right? Um, also in terms of like even hiring practices, um, some 
agencies won't hire Native American people because of different things that they have, um, the stereotypes that they have, or housing discrimination, kind of all of those different things. Hey, I want to break into this episode for a moment. I want to remind you that survivors of sex trafficking experience trauma as a result. Trauma-informed care is something we learn so that we don't re-traumatize victims. However, trauma-informed care will not lower someone's trauma. We have survivors that need to heal inside. Most quality direct service workers connect survivors to needed services like healthcare, housing, legal services, and more. But these services, while necessary, won't address the internal trauma. Even when we connect them to trauma treatment counselors, they spend about an hour a week addressing traumas that have taken over their entire lives. They need so much more. Connecting someone to needed housing won't fix the brokenness inside. Arresting their trafficker allows them justice, but it won't heal the internal pain. Linking them to a lawyer won't take them to a place of reclaiming their freedom and experiencing genuine joy. Walking alongside survivors to provide support, nurturing, love, kindness, and to build relationship is critical. But they also need the tools to regain the power, choice, and voice internally. Healing the internal pain requires survivors to do the internal work. I've worked with and studied the issue for almost 30 years. I recently wrote a book outlining the 12 journeys that survivors need to go on to heal the trauma and to live the life they truly want to live. I'd love to train you to be a group facilitator leading survivors toward the internal healing they need. The training is the TNT Survivors Journey Group. Let me train you to facilitate these important groups and put survivors on their path to living the life they want and experience the freedom and joy they deserve. To learn more, go to my website, celiawilliamson.com, and watch the free webinar to learn more about the course. I look forward to training you and helping you help survivors to heal. And now, on with the podcast. I know in Minnesota, again, we have like some of the top statistics in a negative way in terms of um, like incarceration for Native people and, and in terms of placement for Native youth. And we've, we've done research in Minnesota that has shown that um, our Native kids are getting placed in foster care at higher rates than white kids. Um, and there can be a child protection report that may come in on two different families, exact same report. Um, if the family is Native, it's more likely to get screened in. Uh, it's more likely to result in an investigation, and it's more likely to result in out-of-home placement, even if the same story came in on a white family, that that's, that uh, report might get screened out. So recognizing that our systems are responding in a way that is, um, again, stereotypically incorrect, um, I guess, racist or oppressive against our Native families. So kind of all of those things, which also goes back to, again, like why is historical trauma still relevant? Because the systems that we're interacting with may be perpetuating similar harms that they did before, just in different ways. So they may not be taking kids out and putting them into boarding schools or into forced adoptions, but they're still removing kids from our homes and communities. So child welfare protection, which is, you know, meant to help children 
um, systemically looks very much like boarding school in some some respects. They're moving, we're removing children, and are they placing them in in Native American homes, or um, maybe not so much? Right. Sometimes, sometimes not. Mm-hmm. And so, what do we do with this situation? I mean, we're so the systems that we work within are biased against people of color, particularly against indigenous populations. I mean, you can read the statistics. Um, uh, Black Americans suffer um, throughout their lives, birth to death, and they are met or exceeded by the dismal statistics of indigenous families. So what do you do when you train good, well-intended people who have no idea that this is critically important. Well, I think that the first thing that you said is so important is that recognizing that the vast majority of people that go into these harmful systems are good people. um, And a lot of them are just like not aware of these, whether it is harmful practices or whether it is like implicit biases. So I, I definitely like to talk about implicit bias a lot. And I also like to talk about stereotypes and And what does that mean, right? So when we hear these certain terms, um, particularly around Native American people, what do we think of? And I think that that helps a lot when talking about trafficking, too, because there are similar stereotypes in terms of folks that are experiencing trafficking. So really being able to to draw these parallel um, situations up and talk about how this is what we think we're seeing, um, but this is what's actually happening. So, So trying to take a step back from our initial reactions, or conversely, what people around us have been saying about these populations all of our lives, um, and understanding the impact of trauma, um, multi-generational trauma, and and trying to build empathy. So those are my goals (laughs) when I talk with people about it. Um, I'm not always successful. Sometimes folks get really mad, uh, and that's okay. I mean, it's hard things to hear about, and I think... um, well, it's hard to be vulnerable. It's hard to, I know a lot of people, particularly non-Native folks, white folks feel a lot of shame when hearing about historical trauma and what happens to Indigenous people. And I think that sometimes shame within us can cause us to have some pretty intense reactions. So, yeah, I mean, I think we just have to have a mature approach and not, you know, somebody wrote a book on white fragility and um, being fragile, so fragile about hearing, you know, the state of affairs um, with people of your own group. And I think, you know, I have to make peace with the fact that I am able-bodied and because of that, I am privileged. And because of that, I have the privilege to not have to think about um, certain things, how I'll get in the car, how I'll step off a curb, how I'll walk up the stairs. I don't have to think about those things because I'm privileged. Now, should I feel ashamed about that? No, I should become aware. If I become aware, I become empowered. And not only that, I become an ally. Yes. So it's like if we could think of it that way. And so that's why I'm so excited that you are, I have never heard of a group actually infusing culture into the work of anti-trafficking advocacy. So I think that's awesome. How do you do it? Is there a training? How long is the training? 
so I think that there, there are actually um, 12 of us that were a part, 12 total of us that were a part of this human trafficking leadership Academy. And each of us do different trainings across the United States. Um, some folks work in direct services, some work um, at universities. Um, some folks are just um, community members having conversations with this, uh, with others about this. So um, I have been in the process of creating uh, an anti-trafficking curriculum that focuses kind of on these recommendations. Um, and ideally that will be implemented with youth uh, in a variety of settings, specifically native youth. Um, again, talking about culture, talking about um, native, being Native American and vulnerabilities that we have that are um, kind of heightened by our Indigenous identity, and then also talking about, again, how we can access culture kind of to, to boost resilience and mitigate harm. Um, so that's definitely something that if people are interested in like becoming involved with, they can reach out to me. I've been working with um, the National Human Trafficking Training and Technical Assistance Center on this. Um, we're in the process right now of having um, some peer review reviews with this on folks from a bunch of different associations, not associations, a bunch of different programs. So like uh, administration for Native Americans is one of them. I know that the um, Bureau of Indian Education, I think, is interested too. So like we're in the process, but I would love to start implementing it super soon just because there aren't a lot of conversations really about trafficking as it impacts Native youth. And we know um, in states that have higher populations of Native Americans that we are just like so disproportionately impacted by it. And so, Annie, what's your email or how would you like to uh, people to reach out to you? Yeah, so I can be emailed at anne.lr at someplacesafe.info. That's so awesome. So tell us a little bit about your work as a safe harbor navigator. What, what's that about? Yeah, so it's like the, the best job on the planet. I know that sounds really silly to say. <laughs> um, so I work for a nonprofit organization. It is um, a crime advocacy program in West Central Minnesota, um, and I'm funded through a grant through the Minnesota Department of Health. So uh, Minnesota's anti-trafficking services are all, almost all funded by the state. Um, it's either through the Department of Health, Department of Human Services, or um, through uh, uh, law enforcement related funding. Um, and so what that means is essentially that like all of our um, anti-trafficking programming is a part of a network. Um, even though we're working for different organizations, we are getting together on a regular basis, uh, referring clients to each other, um, talking about programming, trainings, all kinds of different stuff. Um, so what I do as a regional navigator is prim primarily training and technical assistance. So I have um, 16 counties in the state that I am the regional navigator for. And so I will train like law enforcement, child protection, probation, um, community members, schools really on um, identifying trafficking and exploitation, and then talk to them about different services that are available. So my program also has a regional youth advocate who provides direct services, case management to youth in our region who are sexually exploited or sex trafficked. Um, so I'm connecting with that. Um, I, I like to tell people that regional navigators really just like serve as the Google of human trafficking resources in our region, which is super helpful. Basically like a central point of entry. If you want to learn more about trafficking, if you want to get um, connected with services for somebody you're working with, um, if you want to volunteer, like any of those different things kind of come through the regional navigator position. And there are nine of us across the state um, and we all do that in the regions that we serve. Um, and some folks also provide direct services. 
I am so jealous of Minnesota because they just, every time I interview somebody from Minnesota, like they really do just really have it going on. So Annie, if somebody was interested in, in doing what you do, what kind of advice would you give them? What, what path would you set them on? Oh, I think that's such a hard, hard question to answer. Um, Well, I think that everyone's journey is different. And I found particularly in the work that I do um, with my colleagues, we all come from such vast backgrounds, um, such different like educational backgrounds, um, personal experiences. One of my colleagues who is also a regional navigator and who is so fantastic and brilliant was a youth pastor for many years. So like you wouldn't assume somebody that's a youth pastor would end up in anti-trafficking work, um, but he has, and he is so good at the work that he does. Um, I went through it because I had done um, social services. I was a social worker and a supervisor. And um, I felt like the work that I was doing in child protection was, um, I guess, responsive versus preventative. And I really wanted this opportunity to have more ability to do prevention. So I I feel like you can come into the work from many different types of backgrounds. Um, It's just, I don't know, (laughs) not a great answer. But it's it's vast. But if you stay focused and you get in the lane and run the fastest you can in that lane, you can get to the job that you really want to have. So let me just ask you this, this last question is, you know, I'm sure we all have encountered this ourselves and there are many listeners out there. I know that have encountered it. So, so we have this huge issue of human trafficking layered on top of that is this whole unspoken conversation we haven't had about culture and about people who have historically been oppressed. We go around saying anybody can be trafficked as if everybody has an equal chance. We know that's a lie. Statistically, it's a lie. The literature is very clear on um, marginalized populations who are at higher risk. What do you, how do you get up in the morning motivated and inspired to do this work when the problem is huge and the conversation isn't being had yet? That's a really good question. Um, I think that, so again, having had experience working in child protection that I learned very early on to have very low (laughs) expectations and to be really pleased by small outcomes. So I think that anytime I'm able to have a conversation with somebody who has the ability to make a difference in somebody's life, um, that that is incredibly motivating for me. If I can have a conversation with somebody about how um, their client may be impacted by uh, historical trauma and how they can connect them with resources that may have a positive outcome in their life. Like that is such a cool feeling for me. Um, so this again, small changes um, in small areas, I think really creating that ripple effect is something that feels good to me. And then for me, a lot of it is about connection. Um, and if I'm able to build connection um, within partnerships, and I know that those connections, again, are rippling out and having a larger impact, then I, I just think that's great. Um, obviously, I don't think the work that I'm doing is impacting societal or systems change, but I, I know that I am still working at it every day. So 
I haven't gotten to the point where I've given up and that feels pretty good. That's a very healthy way to look at it because you are creating a ripple in the ocean with all the other ripples in the ocean. And that just over time creates a, a, opens the floodgates and creates tidal waves. And, you know, so being a small component of a much larger solution and uh, being a member of all these little ripple effects that we're creating across the U S and around the world, that really is um, creating the change that we need. So I think I get it. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Annie. And uh, keep doing the hard work that you're doing and keep creating those, those ripple effects. I'm going to create mine. You create yours and, you know, we'll create the tide that we need and the flood that we need. So thank you so much again. That was Annie Lafreniere Ritchie talking about the importance of cultural competence and the cultural history of a people and taking that into consideration when we work with them. I want to read you just some some statistics about Native American women. Those are women in the U.S. that are indigenous to this country. They are 10 times more likely to be murdered than any other ethnicity in the U.S., Did you know that murder is the third leading cause of death for an indigenous woman? That's according to the Center for Disease Control. More than four out of five indigenous women have experienced violence. Four out of five. That's 84%. And that's according to the National Institute of Justice. More than half, 56% of indigenous women experience sexual violence. More than half indigenous women have been physically abused by their intimate partners. Less than half, but 48% of indigenous women have been stalked in their lifetime. Indigenous women are 1.7 times more likely than Anglo women to experience any type of violence. And they're two times more likely to be raped than Anglo-American white women. Those statistics are staggering. And we hear a lot about various ethnicities and their risk factors, but we rarely hear about indigenous women. And that's also a tragedy. So, of course, they have high rates of being trafficked. This isn't even really um, measured and counted yet. If you want to know more about Indigenous women, there are lots of reports on missing and murdered Indigenous women in the U.S. and in Canada. Learn as much as you can so that when you're out there doing the work that you need to do, you can do it from a knowledgeable place. So it was an important episode. If you're interested in more, uh, there's another episode. I believe it's episode 119, where we talk about more Native American issues and missing and murdered Indigenous women. Also, if you're interested in reading more about it, there's an author, Chris Stark, that writes a lot about 
um, Native American women and their experiences. And she also writes books that are fictional tales of, of indigenous people and their experiences. And you can learn a lot there as well. Until next time, the fight continues. Let's not just do something, let's do the best thing. If you like this episode of Emancipation Nation, please subscribe and I'll send you the weekly podcast. Until then, the fight continues. <laughs>